passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. pressure of, of uh, the temptation of, of gossip. Uh, the church would look completely different. The, the country would look completely different. You would never struggle with prayerlessness. You would be in perfect communion with God at all times. Sure, temptations would come, but you would never succumb to those temptations. You would be completely content with your relationship with God. There would be no pressure to seek after more because you would be happy with what God had given you. In times of political uncertainty such as now, there would be no reason to worry because God would be completely and utterly in charge of your life and you would be content with that. In short, life would be pretty great, wouldn't it? But the reality is, and and all of us are well aware of this, that is not the case. John Stott was an English theologian in the 1900s, and he describes something that I think all of us can relate to. He says this, you can become a Christian in a moment, but not a mature Christian. Jesus can enter, cleanse, and forgive you in a matter of seconds, but it will take much longer for your character to be transformed and molded to his will. It takes only a few minutes for a bride and bridegroom to be married, but in the rough and tumble of their home, it may take many years for two strong wills to be dovetailed into one. So when we receive Christ, a moment of commitment will lead to a lifetime of adjustment. We can all relate to that. After all, it's what we experience each and every day. We look at the the tension of where our lives are and what the Bible says that God desires for his children to be. We look at passages in scripture that say, be holy just as I am holy. Or be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. And more passages like this. And we see this huge disconnect between our lives and what the Bible says says. We are all well aware that our realities are far more harsher than a just-add-water instant form of Christian maturity. Many of us know firsthand the struggle with at least one sin that no matter how hard you try, you just can't get rid of it. For some people, it is lust or pornography. No matter how many times you vow to give it up, you find yourself back just a few days later. For others, it is a problem with alcohol, and no matter how hard you try, no matter how much willpower you exert, you find yourself at a loss for words as you return back to your master. For others, still, it is a problem of identity. You have vowed time and time again to not place your identity in what other people say about you, in your employment, in your finances, in your family. But Every single time you refocus your life on God, it seems like instantly you return back to placing your identity in these things. Maybe you've been on a mountaintop where you've had this experience, whether it was at a retreat or a conference, you've heard a a sermon or a specific song, and you just can't imagine failing God again. And then just a few days later, you find yourself back in the thick of things. In your darkest times, you 
wonder, what is wrong with me? Does anyone else struggle the way that I struggle? God must think I'm a failure. Once more. And if that's you this morning, I would venture a guess that many of us have, have found ourselves in that location, in that place, several times in our lives, one time or another. Genesis chapter 20 speaks words of hope to you. See, Genesis 20 shares with us a, a glimpse of Abraham's life. And as we've been working our way through Genesis, we've seen a lot of different sides of Abraham's life. We've seen that Abraham's life is a life of a great display of faith, where he is amazingly obedient. And then just a few moments later, we see that his same life is a life, a stunning display of cowardice, of turning his back on God of running away from God. And the good news for us is that's a paradigm each and every one of us can probably relate to. Each and every one of us has, has probably found ourselves in that place where in one moment we are faithful. We have a great faith and yet in the next moment we are turning our backs on God. You see, here at Crosswinds Church, we are not a community that is perfect. Might surprise some of you. We are not a community of perfect people. Instead, we are a community of imperfect people seeking after a perfect Savior. And that's good news for each and every one of us who falls short. We don't seek after perfection here because our Savior is perfect. And we can rest in what He has done for us. And even though Abram lived thousands of years before Jesus, I think the same thing can be said of him as well. It can sum up his faith journey in the exact same words. Abraham was imperfect, and yet he trusted a perfect God. Abraham was imperfect, but he trusted in a perfect God. Abraham was God's chosen representative on this earth, and he responded to that in wonderful obedience, and yet at the same time, he also failed God over and over again. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 20. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as we look at Genesis 20, we're going to keep Genesis 18 in the back of our minds. Genesis 18, we see and we can remember that Abraham stood before God. As he stood before God, he pleaded with God for mercy for the people of Sodom. We have this beautiful picture of a man with a great faith. A man with a great relationship with God. A man who trusts God wholeheartedly with every fiber of his being. And then we turn to Genesis chapter 20. In Genesis chapter 20, we get a very different picture of Abraham. This is not a man of great faith. It is instead a man who is weak, who is small, who is defensive in every single thing that he does. He doesn't trust God, but instead he deceives others. This is a man who puts his wife at risk in order to save himself, to protect himself. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along, starting in verse 1 of chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Genesis chapter 20 
takes place shortly after the fall of Sodom. After the fall of Sodom, Abraham elects to move on from Mamre, where he was currently located. We don't know why he decides to move southwest to a city-state called Gerar. He could have decided to move there because he was fleeing the memory of what had happened to Sodom. It's possible that he was fleeing the the destruction of Sodom because he was looking for another place, a new community to do business with, as he possibly would have done in Sodom. We don't know the reason why he has moved to Gerar, but we do know the emphasis of this passage. If you notice, this passage is very clear. Abraham is sojourning. Abraham is a sojourner. He is living in a land that is not his own, and that makes it a very dangerous place for him to be. He was found in a place where many people didn't know him. They didn't know if they could trust him, and so he felt the threats of being an outsider among all of these people. See, while it's true that Abraham was a sojourner for his entire life, he never really owned property in Palestine until just a few moments, a few chapters after this story, the word sojourner is only used of Abraham when he decides to leave Palestine, when he decides to pack up his bags and leave the land that God has promised to give him. In fact, this phrase sojourner is only used one other time in the story of Genesis referring to Abraham. Can you guess when? It's when Abraham decided to go to Egypt. See, if you read this story, you might have thought you were having a case of deja vu because it sounds awfully familiar to something we've already seen in Abraham's life. It sounds awfully familiar because this isn't the first time that Abraham has done something like this. Several months ago, before Christmas, as we were just being introduced with Abraham, we saw in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is called by God, and he responds with this great show of obedience. And then the second half of Genesis chapter 12, a famine enters the land of Palestine, and so Abraham flees to Egypt. While he is in Egypt, he decides to protect himself by making his wife, Sarah, claim that she is his sister. It was a way of protecting himself, but of course, as we saw several months ago, this plan backfires. Sarah is adopted into Pharaoh's harem. Decades before Genesis chapter 20, Abraham has been faced with the exact same crisis. And rather than trusting God, Abraham decides to trust himself. He decides to flee to Egypt, and he decides to offer his wife out as a way to protect himself. Genesis chapter 20 does the exact same thing. It's not Egypt this time, it's just in Gerar. Decades have passed, but Abraham, even though he's made many giant steps in his learning to obey God, learning to follow God, hasn't changed in this area. He hasn't changed in this area. He sees Sarah as a piece of property, as something that he can use to protect himself And just compare and contrast Abraham in Genesis 18 and Genesis 20. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is the bold intercessor praying for the people of Sodom. And here in Genesis chapter 20, he is the deceptive trespasser going into a land that is not his, deceiving those that surround him. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is a friend of God. 
He is interceding for the people of Sodom before God as a friend would. In Genesis chapter 20, this is a man who acts like he doesn't even think that there is a God, let alone as a friend of God. In Genesis chapter 18, this is a man who pleads with God for mercy for others. And in Genesis chapter 20 is a man who only thinks of himself to the point where he even puts his wife at risk. And as you read this, you might be thinking, what on earth is going on here? What on earth is Abraham doing here? And yet, even as we ask that question, I think many of us know exactly what's going on because many of us struggle with something similar. Just as Abraham struggles with the same sin, the same tendency over and over again, each of us struggles with at least one or two sins that keep coming back. That we keep running back to their sins that are impossible for us to shake. No matter how hard we try, we can't get rid of them. See, others may not struggle with our particular Achilles heel, but for us they're impossible to overcome. And for Abraham, that's what is in view here. That's what his actions show us. Abraham, plain and simple, has a sin problem. Abraham has a problem where he is, when he is pressured, he decides to trust himself rather than trusting in God. This has reared its its ugly head in Abraham's life many times. It rears its head when Abraham is faced with a famine right after he enters the land of Palestine. He's given the choice of trusting God will provide for him in this famine or fleeing to Egypt. And Abraham flees to Egypt. When Abraham is in Egypt, he is faced with the choice of trusting God to protect him in this land that is not his own or offer his wife up as a a part of other people's harem. And he chooses the latter. This rears its ugly head in Genesis chapter 16 when Abraham is faced with the promise of God that he will one day have a child and instead of waiting for God, he decides to take matters into his own hands and has a child with Abraham's wife's slave, Hagar. This shows its ugly head here when Abraham faced with trusting God in Gerar or pulling the same old Deception chooses to pull a deception once more. I think we can learn a lot from Abraham here. First of all, we can learn that each and every one of us has at least one major weakness. Each and every one of us has at least one major weakness. This is an area of temptation that we are far more susceptible to than others than other people are susceptible to, than other areas of sin might be tempting for us. So ask yourself, what is that one area that I struggle with? It's a crucial part to overcoming habitual sins, to recognize where our shortcomings are, where our weaknesses are. We can look at the life of Abraham. We can look at his actions here and say, Abraham, this is absolutely ridiculous. I would never treat my spouse in that way. I think that's a valid critique. It's a valid critique, at least, as long as we keep one thing in mind and do so with compassion. 
Because even as Abraham struggles in this area, I would venture a guess that Abraham could look in each and every one of our lives and say, that is ridiculous that you struggle with that. Each and every one of us is faced with a sin that might not be a big weight for other people, but for us, it is a struggle. That's the first thing that we can learn from Abraham here. Second thing, just like Abraham, all of us live in this tension of faith and disobedience. All of us live in this tension that Abraham's life exemplifies. It's not that Abraham doesn't trust God because he does. Remember Genesis chapter 15. Abraham is counted righteous before God because of his faith. The problem is when Abraham is faced with a crisis, that faith crumbles and that faith evaporates. And throughout his entire life, God is teaching Abraham how to trust him. Not just in the good times, but in the hardest moments of his life as well. I think God is doing the same thing with us as well. God is far more concerned with our hearts than he is about other things. God is concerned with our character. He wants us to become more and more like him. He wants us to trust him more and more in the good times and in the bad. And the key to doing that, I think, can be summed up in one phrase. First, beware of your own weakness. Beware of your own weakness. If you look at Abraham's life after 25 years of following God, he is still susceptible to his weakness. I think each and every one of us could say the exact same thing. If there is a starting point in the battle against sin that we just can't quit, Sin that seems unshakable. And these habitual sins, it is this. Beware of your own weakness. Let's see how God responds to Abraham's sin here in verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did not he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hand, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. So that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. And you and all who are yours. Not long after Abram, excuse me, Abraham arrives in Gerar, this intervention happens. We don't know how long Sarah pretends to be Abraham's sister. But soon after she is taken, God intervenes on behalf of Abraham on behalf of Sarah as well. You see, in Egypt, in Genesis chapter 12, God takes a relatively uh, quiet role. He takes the back seat. He's present, but he's working behind the scenes. But here, it's a very different approach. It seems like God has had enough of Abraham's actions, and he decides to step in, save the day before something worse happens here. And so he reveals himself to this man, Abimelech, in a dream at night. Notice the irony of this man's reply. 
In spite of everything that Abraham has done up to this point, in spite of everything that we have seen from Abraham up to this point, at least in this moment, this pagan king, Abimelech, is far more righteous than Abraham is. And just a side note on that. It is wrong for us to think that Christians by default will be more moral than non-Christians. In fact, we shouldn't be surprised when we find non-Christians who are more moral than Christians. We as Christians do not own the market on morality. That's seen here in Abimelech's life. Why does God step in? Why does he stop Abimelech before something worse happens? Well, the answer is explicit in verse 4, the very beginning of verse 4. It says this, Now Abimelech had not approached her. The passage is making it very explicit that Abimelech has not done anything with Sarah up to this point. You might say, well, why is that significant? Well, think back to Genesis chapter 17 and Genesis chapter 18. In those two chapters, God made a very clear and explicit promise to Abraham and to Sarah that they would have a child within the next year. Probably a month or two has passed between Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 20. We don't know the specifics yet. But not all that much time has passed. This is a day and age before paternity tests. The only way to assure that the child that will be born to Sarah is actually Abraham's, is actually the promised child, is for no one to approach her except for Abraham. And this is adds to the deception here of Abraham, of what he is guilty of. See, it's, it's not enough that Abraham is guilty of, of farming out his wife. What's far, more wor- far worse in this situation is that he puts the very promise God has given him at risk. He puts the promise of God at risk. God has been gracious to Abraham. He has promised him many things, and Abraham has placed this in jeopardy. Abraham has placed the promise of many descendants in jeopardy. Abraham has placed the promise of becoming a great nation in jeopardy. Abraham has placed the promise of kings descending from him in jeopardy. And far more importantly, Abraham has placed a a different promise in jeopardy. And that is the promise that's found in Genesis chapter 12, that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is a a reference back to Genesis chapter 3, where God says that one day he will come and he will reverse the effect of sin. He will just get rid of the curse of sin. He will fix everything. Abraham's actions not only put the personal blessing of God, the personal promise that God has made to him at risk, But without overstating the case, Abraham's actions have actually placed the future of salvation for humanity in jeopardy. Of course, God isn't going to let that happen. And so he steps in and stops Abimelech. It shows the seriousness that God takes towards his promise, his plan to redeem humanity. That's why his words here to Abimelech seem so harsh that there is judgment in store, that there is death in store if he will not listen. And so 
he responds with seriousness. And it might seem unfair to us. After all, Abimelech hasn't really done anything wrong here. He claims that he didn't know better. And, and I kind of find it comical that, that Abraham, or excuse me, Abimelech claims that adding a 90-year-old woman into his harem is an integrity move. But then God agrees with him. So why does God bring judgment upon Abimelech or threaten judgment upon Abimelech? Well, first, it shows us that God will do anything and everything to accomplish his purpose of salvation for his creation. God will let nothing come in the way of his plan to save his creation. And as a part of that, he brings a threat to Abraham, excuse me, to Abimelech. To, re- to reverse the curse of sin, to release creation from the bondage that has come upon it. God takes his plan of salvation very seriously. Second, and, and more important for us this morning is this. Uh, it reminds us that sin can, and sin often does, affect more than just you. Sin, ca- sin can and often does affect more than just you. When you sin, you are not the only person who is affected by your sin. You're not the only person that is affected by the things that you do. The married man who lusts after another woman sins against that other woman because she does not belong to him. He sins against God because he has rejected God in that moment and set himself up as God in that very moment, doing what he wants. He has sinned against his wife, who he's made a covenant relationship with. He has sinned against his children, who he promised to love and to model the relationship of Christ and the church to them. And even if they don't recognize it, even if no one knows about this lust between that man and God, he is still guilty of sinning against every single person. Sin affects more than just you. It ruins relationships. It hurts others. Your sin does not just hurt you, but hurts others as well. So Abimelech, knowing the seriousness of the judgment that's coming because of Abraham's deception, decides to not delay in confronting Abraham. And and that's where we pick up in verse 18, or excuse me, in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech's actions here show a great deal of humility, especially for a pagan king. It would have been far easier, would have been far more respectable for him to approach Abraham quietly without any other person knowing about what is going on here. But instead he decides to tell every single person that's under his rule that he has been duped by Abraham. Abimelech is far more concerned with the safety 
and the deliverance of those people that are entrusted into his care than he is about his own reputation. He also does this to make clear that the entire city knows of his innocence. And again, just look at the contrast here between Abimelech and Abraham. On one hand, we have Abraham who conceals the truth, who is deceptive. And yet on the other hand, we see Abimelech, he lets everyone know the truth. On one hand, you have Abraham is only considered uh, concerned for himself. He puts his wife at risk. And here we have Abimelech who is concerned with the safety of those that are entrusted into his care. Abimelech is more righteous than Abraham in this moment. So Abimelech gathers the city to him, and then he confronts Abraham. And the response of Abraham here, it, it leaves much to be desired. It is not the response of a man with a great faith, with a repentant heart. It is instead the response of a man who is continuing to live in his rebellion, continuing to live in his denial that he has done anything wrong. Notice what he does here. First, he blames the people of Gerar. Notice what it says uh, in verse 11. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. So first, when he's pressured. He, he blames other people. He blames the people of Gerar and, and his inability to analyze their salvation, their under, understand where their, uh, their character lies. He says, I did this because I was afraid you're going to kill me because none of you believe or fear God. But of course, as we see here, they do indeed fear God. Abraham is not the one who fears God. If Abraham would have feared God, he never would have done this in the first place. And so Abraham looks small and weak when he blames others here. Next, notice what he does. He decides to rationalize his actions. He says, well, what I've done, what I said is, is technically true, but it was only a half-truth. And he, he, he says, you know what, Sarah really is my sister. It's interesting what he does here. It shows just the, the weakness of Abraham in this moment. Uh, over the last several weeks and months, I've been watching a lot of the presidential debates. And, and one thing that I've noticed is when a lot of these candidates are asked a question, they respond to that question with their own answer by responding to a question that wasn't even asked. They just go off on a tangent and say exactly what they want to say, what they prepared to say in those moments. I know that if I responded to my wife uh, in the same way that those presidential candidates responded to those questions, it would not fly. But that's what we see here from Abraham. He's responding in the way that he wants to respond in that moment. He rationalizes his decision. And in doing so, he looks weak. And he looks like a man of no faith. Finally, what comes next is, is he resorts to blaming God himself. Notice what he says here in verse 13. And when God caused me to wander. This word wander refers to aimless, hopeless wandering. Oftentimes in a hostile place. What Abraham is saying here is he's saying, If God wouldn't have forced me to leave Ur. If God wouldn't have forced me to leave behind every single thing that I knew and I loved and I felt comfortable about then I never would have found myself in this situation. This isn't my fault. This is God's fault for what has happened to you. The picture of Abraham here is pitiful. 
It is a pitiful picture of a man who habitually blackmails his wife. It is a man who offers his wife out to the men of the city wherever they go, but at least he's safe. It is a man who blames others. It is a man who refuses to admit when he's wrong. It is a man who blames God himself. And it makes a very clear warning for us this morning. And that is this. Don't run from responsibility. Don't run from responsibility for your actions. Abimelech has really nothing to to be ashamed of. And he takes responsibility for the actions that he has done. Abraham dodges them. Abraham dodges the responsibility, he, he dodges the blame. And friends, when you are faced with your sin, when your sin comes to light, you are faced with a decision. What will you do? It is far easier for you to deny your sin. It is far easier for you to shift the blame onto someone else. But you must take responsibility. Taking responsibility for our sin is not fun. It is not something that we really look forward to when our sin is uncovered. It can be embarrassing. It can be uncomfortable. It can make us feel guilt. None of these things are things that I particularly like. But even in the midst of those times, it provides us with a wonderful opportunity. It provides us with a wonderful opportunity to point to the sufficiency of the gospel. Let me explain that. When our sin comes to light, it allows us to point that we are saved not through our actions, but we are instead saved through the work of Christ for us. It is an opportunity to show others how God cares for us, how God loves us. How God is continuing to be at work in our lives. One author, he puts it this way. He says, Often, public knowledge of our sin will be embarrassing for us. Even humiliating. Especially if we are in positions of Christian leadership. But in that way, he gives us an opportunity to repent publicly. To speak plainly about the gospel. That is the only hope for sinners like us. Jesus loves us when we are wicked as well as when we follow him well. And our public sins give us ample opportunity to testify to that amazing fact. Friends, when you sin, don't run from what you have done. Look at it instead as an opportunity, an embarrassing opportunity, a painful opportunity, a humiliating opportunity, an uncomfortable opportunity, yes. But an opportunity to point others to the grace of God. And that's how this chapter ends. It ends looking at the undeserved grace that God has for Abraham in spite of Abraham. Take a look, starting in verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children 
For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Notice the great, wonderful, incredible grace that God has for Abraham in spite of his sin. First, through Abraham, God blesses, uh, excuse me, through Abimelech, God blesses Abraham with more livestock, with more servants, and with more money. The amount of silver that he gives here is an exorbitant amount. It is more than most people make in their lifetime. The message is clear. Sarah has not been touched. This is a sign of grace for a doubting Abraham. Again, through Abimelech, God blesses Abraham with the right to sojourn. No longer is he a stranger in this land. No longer is he an outsider in this land. But instead, he has been given the right to live there. He has no reason to fear the people of Gerar anymore. There's a sign of God's grace on this small little man. Third, notice that God answers Abraham's prayer for the people of Gerar. Even though Abraham is supposed to be a prophet, that's what God refers to him as in this passage, he's supposed to be a mediator between God and humanity. He doesn't act like one at all. And yet God still hears his prayer. God listens to the prayer of Abraham on behalf of the people of Gerar as a sign of grace for a weak Abraham. And then finally, notice the, the way this passage ends. God shows Abraham, and he shows us, that he will bless Sarah by opening her closed womb. In this passage, we see that God, because of Sarah, closed all the wombs of the women of Gerar effortlessly. And when Abraham prays, he opens those same wombs effortlessly. It's pointing us to the next chapter, to next week, when we look at the birth of Isaac, that God will fulfill his promise. It is a sign of grace for a wayward Abraham. As we close this passage, I just want to ask, is this frustrating for you? Is it frustrating that Abraham is wicked? He does nothing to deserve God's blessing, and yet God blesses him anyway. In spite of everything that he has done to harm his wife, in spite of everything he's done to harm the people of Gerar, even the, in spite of everything that he has done to harm himself, God blesses him anyway. We have this picture of Abraham where he not only doesn't trust God, but instead he decides to trust himself alone. To make matters worse, we have this picture of Abimelech who seems to be righteous, and yet God threatens him for this wicked Abraham. Is this passage telling us that God will bless some people no matter what, no matter how wicked they are? If you're frustrated with this passage as, as I have been as I read it, I think it reveals to us an important misconception that so often we believe. So often we believe that God loves us more when we are good. That God loves us more when we do things for him. But that's not true. The third verse of the song, Jesus Loves Me, describes this incredibly well. It says this. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, 
even though it makes him very sad. What powerful truth in that children's song. God's love for us does not change the more we read our Bibles, the more we pray to him, the more we serve him. God's love for us does not change the more deeds we do for him, the more money we give to the church, the more sacrifices we make. It is not possible for God to love you any more than he already does right now. And it is not possible for God to love you any less because he cannot deny himself. When we sin against God, when we act like Abraham here, yes, God is disappointed in us. Yes, God can even be angry with us, but his love for his children remains. For those of you who are parents, think. No matter how often your children hurt you, no matter how much they disappoint you, no matter how much they disobey you, your love remains. And if we feel that way, how much more does our perfectly wonderful, gracious Heavenly Father feel that way? One, theologians, one theologian from the 1500s described this characteristic of God as wonderfully angry. God is wonderfully angry with us when we sin. What he means by that is, yes, God is angry with us when we disobey him, when we commit sins. And yet, at the same time, it is wonderful. It is wonderful because God's love remains for us. No matter what we do, God's love remains. That's what this passage is telling us. It is reminding us that God's love for you and for me does not depend on you and me. God's love for you does not depend on you. God's love for me does not depend on me. We cannot earn God's love by doing more. We cannot lose God's love by rejecting him. God is loving even when we are unloving. God is faithful even when we are faithless. God is trustworthy even when we are untrusting. God is good even when we are evil. And it is from this place... It's from this knowledge that God's love for us is faithful, will never fade, that we are given the ability to overcome our habitual sin. We start it by recognizing our weaknesses. From there, we, we look at the way that our loving Father looks at our sins. We, we look at the stench of the sin in His eyes. We look at the ways that that we uh, oftentimes take steps down that path toward those sins. We even look at the times where God allows us to be humiliated as opportunities to look to the grace of God. To look to the love of God for us. Friends, that is the good news of this passage. God's love for you and me does not depend on on you and me. From that place, let us live lives that honor and glorify him. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for the good news of grace. That your love never fails. No matter how far we stray, 
No matter how often we commit the same sin over and over, your love remains. And yes, you allow us to be humiliated. You allow us to be embarrassed, but it is only to bring us back to you and to point others to you. And so, God, I I pray that you would help us learn from the example of Abraham. Help us to learn how to love you better as a response to the incredible love that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.